pray one more time. Father, we, we thank you for the fullness of what you have done for us. Lord, help us to see it more clearly today. Help us to love you more intently. Lord, speak to us from your word. We believe it's true. Lord, use me as I ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. We are in Mark 16, 1 through 20 this morning, so if you have a Bible, if you turn there, it'll be on the screens, and there's a Bible in the seat back ahead of you today. So we, last week, um, one of our associate pastors, Brandon Marshall, was here, and he spoke, and if you haven't heard it, incredible message, and uh, it's online, you can grab that. Um, but we do conclude, um, we, we do conclude this week our, our study in the book of Mark. Whew. It's like a marathon. Right, it's like uh, I think it's when we originally started it was 68 sermons, I think like that. And so, um, congratulations for enduring me for 68 sermons in the Book of Mark. But uh, it's a wonderful thing to study the Bible, and I, I hope I hope you've learned a lot more about the life and the work of Jesus um, as we've gone through this study. This morning, as we look at this text, one of the things that we will see if we kind of go backwards a little bit is that really that Saturday. Jesus died on Friday. That Saturday was a dark, dark day. I don't know if any of you have ever felt despair. Have you ever felt despair in your life? This moment where you just think, how can anything be right again? What are we going to do? What am I going to do? Have you ever felt that? Well, that Saturday would have been one of those probably legitimate days of despair What are we going to do? The Son of God is gone. He's dead. He's in a tomb. The one who I banked everything on is no longer here. But see, what we'll read this morning moves from despair to overwhelming hope. And there's a real contrast in this section of Scripture from overwhelming despair to overwhelming hope hope. Now, I don't know if you watch the news much. I I don't watch it a ton, Um, but I did this week. And when I watched things on Charlottesville, it was the first time, I think, in my life that I've ever heard things that were said in my nation, like, kill all the blank chanted over and over. I watched this report where they were kind of inside the, the Friday night protest. And then I heard other things like, away with the blank. And it was, whether it was black or Jew or whatever, it was kill them, rid them, they're a blemish on our world. And as I watched that with Nazi flags, which was peculiar, what we fought to free the world from is being flown up and down streets in our country, which is peculiar in and of itself. Thank you, World War II veterans, for what you have done for the world. I don't know if you felt this way, but there was this moment where it's just like, what in the world is, is this? And then we try to explain it, and I've read some posts on Facebook, which I try not too many because they irritate me. And uh, 
Uh, and I don't like to be irritated, and I don't honor God much when I'm irritated, so I try to rid myself of things that irritate me in my life. And so that's just a note for me. And so, uh, and so there were all these things kind of spur- but But I, I'll just give you my, and I don't know if this will help you. This is kind of my thoughts. You notice that, that fear and anger, I think, are kind of in the middle underneath a lot of this. Fear and anger work like this. I'm afraid that this people and that people are going to overpower my people. Therefore, I'm angry toward them, and I'm going to march up and down the streets and say terrible, horrific, bigoted, awful things. And therefore, it creates fear. Oh my goodness, they're out against me. This is going to happen. Now I'm mad at them. They can't do this. And fear and anger, fear and anger, it perpetuates itself. And what it does is it creates despair. Undoubtedly, what we saw last week was hatred, oppression, bigotry, violence, And I think at the base of it, just anger, like capital A-N-G-E-R. And I think deep anger and deeper anger, and in many ways, it's something that's growing stronger in our day. So what, what do we do? What do we do in light of this? Well, for me, this is, this is how a little bit, maybe this is helpful for you and promise this isn't just going to be about this today. We're going to get in the text in a minute. But I think it applies. For me, it works like this. There's this man that I love. I did his wedding about a little over a year ago. When I did his wedding, I I don't have any sons. I don't know if you know that. But it was the first time I felt like I did. Well, second time I felt like I did, really. Um, I mean, it's like I had like a wad of cash, like when I shook his hand, right, before he went out. And he like said, you know, take it on the, like, just, I just want you to be okay. I want you to have, like, that was my moment with my son. His name's James Talbert. And when I see that stuff, it hurts me because I know it hurts him. And it, it changes how I see it because there's been, see, I've, my life has been in proximity with this man that I love. For, for people to chant they want James dead grieves my soul. But not only James, but first son that ever lived in my house for five months was a a little little boy named Marcus Gibson. And uh, Deb was pregnant with Kinsley and probably the only child in our house that I took a lot of care of. Uh, She's been pretty awesome with all that. Marcus and I spent a lot of time together. And when I see that, I think, man, people, people think Marcus is dumb because of the color of his skin. That's ridiculous. People think that he can't be something, that he's some sort of, like, this is crazy. He is such an amazing young man. And so what it does in me, and I'll just tell you what, how I choose to see this. I choose to see it with the proximity of people that God has put in my life. And it causes me to move to a place of compassion. And it causes me to move to a place of seeing the people for who they are. And so... Don't hear me making any sort of political statement today whatsoever. I'm not speaking about statues or whether or not they should be there, but I'll tell you a little bit of my thought on that. If, if my boys see something that causes them deep pain, I'll tell you what, if it was in my house, it'd be gone. So that's just my, my little thought on that. I'm saying. 
Because I just think God cares about people more than he cares about these other things. And I'm going to choose to love people. And I think this is what honors our Lord. I don't know if you're with me on this. Anybody with me on this, you can say amen. Some of you are like, and I know it, some of you are like, you don't get it, Ryan, but that's okay. Um, We all have to live in a place where we're comfortable. But I'll tell you this, it is a personal issue to me. And the reason it is because I deeply love people that it hurts deeply. And see, in the context of our text, I think we find ourselves in places of despair. We find ourselves, and I think even in our nation, in a place of despair. And I think it might be a little bit, not fully, not even to the limit of what that dark Saturday was like. There's no hope. There's no end. What's going to happen? But I think what we do know is people who have trusted in Jesus, that there is hope, actually. There is hope. We don't have to live in despair, but there's, there's hope, and that hope came on Sunday. And we might find a place of pure, real, and eternal hope because we have a Savior who has risen from the dead. He is no longer building these kingdoms on earth, but he has set an eternal kingdom in which Hebrews says is unshakable. And so now I am a citizen of an an eternal kingdom that that is unshakable, and so I will not live in despair. But I will live hopeful because my king is coming back. My king will set things right. My king will get revenge where it is due, and I do not have to take it myself. My king rules and reigns well. And I can trust him to rule and reign as I live in hopefulness because he's in. The Bishop Melito of Sardis wrote these words in regards to those of us who are in Jesus. And he wrote them as though Jesus was speaking them over us. He says, I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb that was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your savior. I am your resurrection. I am your king. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal father. I will raise you up by my right hand. Christians, we have no reason to live in despair. We can be hopeful because we have a savior who has given us every reason to be hopeful. So this morning, as we look in this text, this time in history, again, there's two extremes, this complete despair and overwhelming hopefulness. And I believe for us today, we can choose to live in despair and darkness like the children of Saturday did, or we can choose to live in hopefulness as the children of Sunday. So let's read the text this morning. Text reads like this 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. What they desired to do, these three women, is they desired to honor the life of Jesus. They, they wanted to anoint him. They wanted, even though he'd been buried and done, they, they just wanted to go do something because they deeply loved this. This man, Jesus, the Savior, and says, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, so this was early that Sunday morning, the sun was up, they went to the tomb. 
a tomb again was Joseph of Arimathea had found a tomb. And um, it says in 15 verse 43 that, just interesting thing about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a man that was almost like a seeker. He knew there was something unique and different and special about Jesus. So they, they went to the tomb and they were there so they, and they were saying to one another, this was the, the topic of conversation, right? This, this was what they had been saying kind of the whole time they were walking along was, how are we going to get this huge rock away? We want to anoint him, but there's this barrier. And I don't know if you've ever done that in your life where you're going to do something. You have no idea how you're going to achieve it, but you continue to move toward that thing that you don't know what you're going to do. And this is kind of where they were. They were going to a tomb that they didn't really even know how they were going to achieve what they wanted to achieve. They were saying again, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? How will we do this? And looking up, and this, their despair, I mean, just imagine them. They were looking down, and they were sad, and they were crying. And looking up, maybe for the first time from their downcast, the astonishment begins. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The doorway was completely free. There was this expansive act that had moved moved. A, a stone that could not be moved by man in the way in which it had. And it, it had been moved in this expansive act. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Now, an angel was in there. And we hear this. We see this in the story. Now, one of the, I, I just have this, like, thing. This is a side note. That I'm, <clears throat> my whole life, I'm just going to help people understand that angels aren't what you think they are. Right? And so... What we think, I don't know if you have this in your house. My wife has some of these things called willow tree in her house, and they're, 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 oh, they're so cute. And, uh, and they have angels, right? And there's these angels, and they, there's like this angel, and it's like got these wire wings, and it's holding a heart. It's so cute, right? It's just a cute little angel. And there's like, I think I've seen this one. There's one that has like a kitty cat, right? This angel's like... Yeah, like this little cat, so cute, which is totally not true. I, God doesn't even like cats, and so, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> yeah. And all the cat people are done listening. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I had a cat when I was a kid. I loved it, and so, uh, and so we we have this picture maybe like when we see this angel, right? He's like just sitting there with the kitty cat, petting it, and he's like, hey. Jesus, this isn't like what angels look like. Every time that we see an angel in the context of scripture, they they have a sword, they're warriors, they're strong, they're mighty. And so there's this this angel in this text, and this doesn't say a ton, this specific text text doesn't, but there's this angel who is not some weak and weary and tiny little figure kind of holding a cat or holding a heart. It's a strong and powerful, right, warrior of God with him. And so, so they're alarmed, and I think their alarm is twofold. One, they're alarmed like, whoa, what's happening here? Jesus, like, th- there's something that's happened. And the other alarm is there's an angel in the room, and when angels are in the room, people fall down. That's, that's kind of how that works. Not even always out of, not even in worship and in fear. So there you go. There's my kitty cat angel illustration. And so... So, so they, they entered the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, and the angel was there. They were alarmed, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Don't move too fast past those two lines. You seek Jesus 
of Nazareth who was crucified. The crowning glory of Jesus is said in those few words. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified for all time and eternity. We will look at him and we will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. The angel recognizes the sacrificial work that Jesus had done on behalf. He says, you seek the one who was crucified, who died for the sins of the world. What he says is next, which brings hopefulness. He has risen. He is not here. He is no longer in the tomb. He got up and walked. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is no longer covered in a tomb, but Jesus is alive. The grave could not hold him. They say, See the place where they laid him. He wasn't there. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he has been going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And we know that they did these things in other accounts of the Gospels. We see that they went and they did this. And verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. There was this moment of like, what in the world is going on? What has happened? The, the, everything has shifted and changed. Now, in the text, what you're going to see is right, um, like some of your headings in your Bibles, it's going to say next, um, not found in the early manuscripts. Anybody's Bible say that? Raise your hand. Anybody's Bible say that? Yep. So it says that. So you might think, well, is this, if you didn't think this, now you're going to, is this scripture or is it not? Okay. So I'm going to try to help you explain that here for a second. So first I'll say this. I believe the Bible is true. I believe the Bible that you hold in your hands is, is complete, and I believe that it has been preserved over centuries and centuries and centuries by God himself. And the reason I say that is there's over 25,000 manuscripts of this Bible, of pieces and parts of it. So there's this little myth that goes around. Have you ever heard this, that the Bible is really just a translation of a translation, so you can't really trust it? Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah? Okay. Well, that's not true. Um, actually, it's, it's sort of true of the King James Version, and it's a very good translation, and the New King James Version. They are translated from a different things in the Bible we have in our hand. But what this Bible that I hold in my hand is translated from is all 25,000 original manuscripts. And all those 25,000 original manuscripts, what they did is they compiled them. And there was this thing they called textual variations. And textual variations are these kind of... <clears throat> changes. And so uh, one of the examples of that might be that maybe a, a scribe copied, copied it down so that it could be circulated. They didn't have printing presses. And instead of writing Thessero, he wrote Therion. And so instead of saying, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, it would read, store up for yourselves beasts in heaven, right? And within the context of that verse, what you would do, and over all the other, tr all, all the other manuscripts of that verse, you would see, oh, the greater weight of evidence is not beasts, because the context of the verse doesn't really speak to that, and the greater context says treasure. And so in all of that, A.T. Robertson says, Greek scholar, says that there's 99.9% .9 accuracy of all the manuscripts that are found. And this is, I don't know if you, that astonishes you, but that is actually massively astonishing that God would preserve the scriptures like that. There's no other literature in, in the world that we would hold to that, that they even want to come close to the amount of manuscripts that we have for the Bible. And so I say that to say that I believe that this Bible is full and complete 
And I, I believe that the Bible you hold in your hand is a true English out of the original autographs of the writers, okay? And so I believe that to be true. And I, I believe it so much in my own life that I began to preach when I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ in college. And then as I began to sense and realize that God had called me into pastoral ministry, I thought I need to study because I want to be able to do this well and I don't feel like I'm equipped to do that well. So I went to seminary, took classes on expositional preaching, and I took classes two years of Greek and one year of Hebrew and began to study this. When, <clears throat> and, then, and then I finished my Master's of Divinity and I began to do ministry and I realized like I think God's called me to be a lead pastor and so I'm going to really preach every Sunday to people and I really want to do that well. So I took a, I took a <clears throat> Doctor of Ministry course, right? This is, I'm giving you my resume here for a second. Took my Doctor of Ministry because I, 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 I wanted to do well with this book, and I'll tell you, and I did my doctor ministry in expository preaching, and I got to be around incredible preachers, and got to learn a lot. And you may, some of you may be like, "You should keep going to school. You're not that good." But I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it to be good because I don't know what that is. That's subjective. Uh, but I did it because I don't want to get it wrong. See, I believe that every verse and every text and every passage, I believe that the original author, the the people who originally wrote it, right. They had, they had a point, they had a message that they were trying to move. And I think my job as a preacher and a teacher is to do as best as I can to take the truths in which they were communicating and then help us to apply them in our lives today. And so for me, I, I have given my life to preaching and teaching this book in lots and lots and lots of study, right? And I, I say that somewhat painfully. And so when we see this ending, what do we do with it? Well, I'll tell you this. For me, the, 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 ending, of, um, the ending of the book of Mark, when it, is, it does seemingly come across a bit different, and any scholar would say that. <clears throat> but what we do also see about the ending of the book of Mark is it, it really is not contradictory to any other section or portion of Scripture. It actually is in line with the end teachings, and it's much more referential than it is telling the bigger part of the story. And I do consider myself to be a theological conservative. And being a theological conservative, I'm always going to take the conservative approach because I would never, never, ever want to get it wrong. And so for me, I do believe that the ending of this book was intended for us from God. I believe that's why it's in this canon of scripture, and I think we can teach it and hear it as truth from it. So are you with me? Okay, that's how I feel about this. So does that help you? I hope it's helpful. So afterward, it says in verse 14, uh, or in verse 12, sorry, verse 9, I'm moving ahead. Uh, verse 9, it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to first Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been, had been seen by her, they would not believe it. They couldn't believe that this was happened. There was this, there was this mourning and weeping. They were still living in Saturday's reality. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. This is the story, Luke 24, 13 to 32. It's the road to Emmaus. And they walked, they walked to Emmaus and they got there and Jesus had been with them. He'd veiled himself to them, turned around. And he began to tell them of all the Old Testament and all of the fulfillments of God and his interaction. And probably one of the most incredible times in all of time and history of teaching where Jesus explained the whole Old Testament. I'd love to take that course, right? I mean, when we get to heaven, 
we'll ask those guys to tell us what he's saying, because I don't get Ezekiel, like whatever it is, he's going to reveal it to us. And, and so they're walking down this road, and so another form, the two of them, as they were walking in the country, verse 13, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Again, this act of disbelief kind of begins to, continues to perpetuate. And then after he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Jesus rebuked them. Why? For their unbelief. Unbelief is sin. The root of sin is not believing in God. And so fear, what is sinful about fear? Fear is saying, God, you are not in control, and I am scared to death of what's going to happen. And this was this moment for them. He rebuked them of their fear because they had not believed. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the great commission. Whoever believes and is baptized, who is identified with Jesus fully, will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hand. And if any drink of any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And these are all these marked by supernatural content. This these things actually happened as we read through the book of Acts. As they went out through the book of Acts, there was this, there was this moment where it wasn't the disciples who were being applauded, but there was, there was no doubt that these men were from God, that God had a message, and there was these supernatural acts that were pouring out of the church in the first century. So these things move forward. Now, some people do crazy stuff with this text, like they actually like hold snakes, and they get bit, and if they live, they have faith. Like That's the Kentucky something like we're not doing that up in here right you bring snakes in here I'm gone right that's how that, how that that's how that works so then that's not what this is talking about right so verse 19 gonna move on fast so then the Lord Jesus after he had spoken to them was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God now that phrase sat down at the right hand of God is this moment of of Jesus sat down the high priest would have committed sacrifices over and over and over again for the sins of the world and what Jesus does, our high priest, is he sits down. It's done. The work is over. Nothing else needs to be done to forgive sins. Nothing else needs to be done. Jesus has completed the task needed for us to be right with God. Verse 20, and they went home and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Love that phrase, worked with them. We are not alone in this mission that he has called us to. And confirm the message by accompanying signs. Again, the anointing and the power of God was undeniably upon those who were doing his work. So for us, quickly, this morning, what is it that we can take away from this passage or this text? There's many things, but two for us today would be this kind of principle, maybe like a spiritual axiom, and it would be this, is that his humiliation brought exaltation. His humiliation brought exaltation. Now, an axiom is a, a rule or a, a principle of life, a, a standard, a maxim. And so here's a few, maybe for us to understand, a few axioms that I've learned in my life. So here's two for me. A small spark can start a very large fire. That's an actual axiom I have learned by experience. Um, resilience is something that grows, not something that exists. 
For me, resilience has not come. It was not something given to me by my parents, but it was something that through trial and struggle, God continues to grow in me. Resilience isn't something we possess. It's something we grow in, right? That's a true truism, a reality. Bruce Lee, the great ninja warrior, said this, knowledge will give you power, but character will give you respect. It's a great little phrase from Bruce Lee. If that urges you to watch some Bruce Lee, you should always, if you feel the urge. Um, This is from one of my favorite YouTube videos, Um, a guy on a buffalo. When attacked by a cougar, you just have to punch that cougar in the face. Uh, If you know me, super funny. And that's how that works. If you get attacked, you just punch it. So um, Martin Luther King Jr. may be a little bit better than that one. We must live to learn together as brothers or perish together as fools. It's a maxim. It's true, right? It's it's a truism. And the truism, the, the maxim, the axiom in this text is, he who lowers himself will be exalted. He who lowers himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12 says it like this. Whoever, Jesus, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The scriptures are consistent in 1 Peter. It says this, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So how do we see the humiliation of Jesus How do we see the humble nature of Jesus? Nothing really parallels the length in which he went. There's nothing that ever could. The creator of all things, the one who put everything into motion, the leader of the army of God, the the son of God, the triune nature, sat in heaven, knew our need, and stepped down into humanity. And stepping down into humanity, he took his his kingly rule and reign and humbled himself and became a man. And not only did he become a man, but he walked and he went through this earth and he went through the brokenness that he did not create, that we did ourselves. And in our own creation, he came down into the mess of this world. And not only did he come into it, but he was brutally beaten within it. He humbled himself, and he became sin for us. And at the peak of his manhood, he allowed himself to suffer the most humiliating and torturous death possible, the epitome of humility. He experienced separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit for us alone. There could be no greater humiliation than what Jesus experienced. But see, in his humiliation, there was exaltation. Christ's exaltation is on that Sunday morning. Matthew says there was a violent earthquake in the world. An angel came down, rolled the stone away, and sat on it. There was appearance like lightning, clothes of snow. Guards shook and became like dead men. Jesus came out of his grave, clothes came out of his grave clothes in his sacred human body, glorious and radiant, and the angels' cheers rang up through the heavens that sin and death and hell had been defeated for those whom he loved. Christ's humiliation brought his exaltation. 1 Corinthians 5.17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
here, the apologetic in 1 Corinthians 15, just so you know, there is, there is a weight upon weight of evidence that Jesus rose in a bodily resurrection. And people try to explain this away. Now, there's this swoon theory and that it was a hallucination and all these things. But, but here is Paul defending the resurrection of Jesus. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. People saw him with their eyes. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There is a great weight of evidence that these men actually saw Jesus. And one of the reasons I believe even more than that is that they would then, because they saw the resurrected Christ, would go and die for him. The men who saw Jesus gave everything up because they saw his resurrected self. And they knew that this was no scam, but this was real. And everybody's lives depended upon it. And by the way, the weight of that is still the same to this day. So Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross, and his resurrection was his exaltation, and his exaltation is our hope. Jesus took the low road and was exalted to the high road, and we are on the low road. He's asked us to willfully choose the low road, and only Jesus can exalt us to the high road. So the second thing that we see in the text is his resurrection brings hopefulness. His resurrection brings hopefulness. The stone was rolled away, an angel appeared, and says that you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. This is verse 6. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. He fulfilled his promise. He said he was going to the grave. He said he was going to rise from the grave, and he did. And in this, their despair and grief turned to astonishment. In the whole story, hope had come. The grave could not hold him. They were no longer entrapped by their own self and their own egos and their own flesh, but they gave themselves over to him. Death was defeated. His resurrection now brought eternal hopefulness for those in this text and for us. They then lived lives out of the hopefulness they have in Jesus Christ. So two things for us to walk away with. The first is we've been called. What do we do in light of this? First, we we humble ourselves and trust that one day we will be exalted. The road of the Christian life is a road of humility. It's of lowering ourselves and becoming servants ourselves. This is what Jesus has clearly modeled and what he has called us to. To take the low road, the road of humility of a servant. John the Baptist said it well, oh, that he might increase and that I might decrease. Less of me, more of him. And the second is that we live hopeful in light of his triumph, that we never forget that Jesus has triumphed and I never have to live in despair again in this world because I can always be hopeful in my resurrected Savior. So we love, we love stories of hopefulness. At least I do. Some of you like movies that end really sad. They're the worst, right? If I watch a movie, I want to be a little bit happy at the end, right? 
Um, and so, so we love stories of hopefulness, and we could tell many of these stories of hopefulness. There's a story I read this week about a man named Sir Nicholas Winton. Sir Nicholas Winton was in World War II. He, he was in Paris, and he'd heard of what Nazi Germany was doing to, um, to, to Jewish men and women and children. And he'd seen pictures of some of the concentration camps, and it deeply, deeply troubled him. And so he got on a train and went to Prague in Czech Republic, where Germany was about to invade, and un- undoubtedly they were going to take it over. And he went, and he spent two weeks there, and he began to make contacts. And he realized that he couldn't get men and women out, but he could get children. And so he began to fight to figure out how to do this, and in those two weeks, he began a system, began context of trying to get them out. He then goes back to Paris, and in Paris, he develops a fraudulent um, um, division of the government, which is an awesome part of the story, and he begins to send letters and memos of the release of these children from Czech Republic. And he began to do this, and he never saw one of the kids, he never saw anyone, and it worked. He began to rest, and when asked why he did it, he said, I, I don't I guess I've never really thought about that. The burden was just too great to not do something. In the 80s, he really never told anyone about it, and his wife found a book, and it had all the names of all the children that had come. And he was on a show, and on the show, they had him stand up, and he turned around, and they said, all of these children, all these people in the room are here because of what you've done. And he began to cry, and, you know, it was very emotional. And, and what it is, about 15,000 people today are alive because he went to Prague for two weeks. <clears throat> we have a Savior who came to this world for 33 years. And it was the greatest rescue mission that had ever been. And I'll tell you this, if you think Auschwitz is bad, it's nothing compared to hell. And Jesus came to rescue us from the mess of this world. But see, Jesus had to die the perfect sacrifice in order to cleanse us of our sin and make us right with God. He was an extravagant, most extravagant ever, he gave the most extravagant act of love that has ever been shown in humanity. But what's amazing about Jesus, it wasn't just for 660-some Jewish children in Czech Republic. He died for the sins of humanity. And if we will turn to him in repentance and faith, we can have life. And I'll tell you, for me, he reached down and pulled me up and he rescued this guy. And I was in a life of despair and hopelessness. And he has brought me peace and hopefulness in my life. And I promise you, he can do the same for you if you will turn to him in faith today. To the Christian in the room, I hope that we learn and we see how Jesus humbled himself and we respond in the same way in which he humbled himself. Hope we see the length that he went to on our behalf, that it actually maybe moves us even to emotions at times. How Jesus could love us so much to give himself for us in the way he did. Maybe for us, we live hopeful in light of the resurrection of our Savior. But if you've never turned to Jesus, I'm just telling you, the greatest rescue mission that's ever happened, it's done and it's finished. Freedom is available to you today.
if you will simply repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the full and completed work of our Savior. We're grateful for the gospel of Mark that, Lord, you gave to us an account of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. His life, his work, his ministry, but Lord, what we've read over the last few weeks, simply what he came to do to rescue us from our sins. Lord, we believe. We believe that you love the world so much that you sent your one and only son into this world for us. Lord, we believe. Some of us, Lord, we've, we've done this. We've given our lives to you and you have overwhelmed us with your grace and forgiveness and for that we are grateful. Transform us more and more to your image, Jesus. Help us to look like you and show you and display you. Remove despair and hopelessness from our life and move in peace and hopefulness in all things that we might display the proof and the power of the resurrection in our lives. For those who have not believed, Lord, give them the strength today to turn toward you to repent, to turn from their sin and to place their faith in you the resurrected the only hope we have Father we love you help us to respond well now I ask in Jesus name, amen if you'll stand we're going to sing one last song as we sing this song These altars are open for you to come and pray. And if you've never given your life to Christ, come, talk to me, talk to someone down front. We'd love to help you do that.